0: Thank you for the fellowship that we have in Christ. Thank you for um, bringing Mark here and him being upright and for restoring Ray from being sick this past week and others, I'm sure, too. Lord, thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, Mark is here. Uh, he's, he's very sensitive about training wheel jokes, um, bicycle helmets, Anything like that, so just you know, he's he. Don't 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 pick it. Don't pick it, Mark. Just give him (laughs) give him some slack. Uh, Well, good morning. Um, We are in in our Sunday school series. We're we're looking at doubt and assurance. And over the past few weeks, we have focused mostly on the topic of doubt. We've looked at the ways that we do doubt uh, and how we are to kind of wrestle through our doubts, or overcome our doubts, or fight our doubts, or whatever the language is that we want to use. Um, But the objective of overcoming doubt, or fighting through doubt, is of course assurance, that we might be sure in our faith. And it's good to remember that assurance is a journey, not a destination, and I don't mean some deep philosophical thing by that, but rather that even if, if we're assured this morning and we, we, we don't have doubts, there's still room to grow. We don't, we don't ever stop growing in our assurance. Uh, there's a greater awareness of what Christ has done for us, who he is, what he's accomplished, uh, all that that means for us. Assurance can mean a number of things broadly, what we believe about Scripture, what we believe about God, what we believe about our world, and, and so forth. Uh, but it's most specifically when we talk about it, about our salvation, and so that's what we're going uh, to look at. But you can't divorce all those things from assurance of salvation. Uh, What we know about God, who He is, what He's done, what we know about us, our world, about sin, about Satan, all of those things are part of the equation. They can't be separated. And so, uh, Keeping that in mind, we're going to look at assurance and doubt, but you know, we're, we'll still talk about doubt. We're going to zero in on assurance now for the next three weeks, more from that perspective uh, and uh, uh, coming at it from, uh, from different angles. So today, I want to begin by looking through the lens of redemptive history, and part of my reason for starting here is because of what we did in the fall. If you were with us in the fall, we uh, looked at how we can understand Scripture through the lens of redemptive history, so I thought that might be familiar to us in some ways, uh, the paradigm creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That is the story of God's unfolding plan of redemption throughout history, and particularly how it's revealed in Scripture. And one of the reasons why this is helpful as we come to passages, as we're reading through the Bible this year, as we come, especially to difficult passages, is when you, you think, what in the world does this have to do with anything? You know, why, why is this in the Bible? Why did God include that? And part of understanding that creation, fall, redemption, restoration paradigm is seeing how pieces of the puzzle fit into place. And so when we come to books like Leviticus, seeing the the, the place for all of those lists and rules and requirements and so forth that demonstrate God's holiness, that demonstrate our inability to keep it, that demonstrate our need of a Savior, and so forth, we begin to understand and see that. And so, with this paradigm, we start with creation. That's our origin story. God created us in His image for His glory, our first parents without sin. And even as sin enters the world, we see from the very opening pages of Scripture the proclamation of the gospel and the curses that, that, uh, that the Lord declared, particularly on the serpent I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And I won't take time to talk about that, but that's that, you know, pointing to, it's a singular here, an offspring that would come uh, pointing to Christ who would crush the head of Satan. Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, creation mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it. And yet, what seems to be more fruitful than <laughs> their work is... The fruitfulness of sin, right out of the get-go. We have Cain and Abel. We've got uh, the story of the flood account and how the Lord's ready to destroy everything. Just, you know, it seems like just at the very beginning. And then afterwards, it just starts all back up again. And we have the Tower of Babel. And then comes Abram. Abram, who uh, was in Ur of the Chaldees, a pagan land. God calls him out and says to him, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And what does Abram say back to the Lord? Yeah, right. Not, okay, great, but a very legitimate question. How is this going to be realized? I don't have any kids. How how, how can this be true? How can my reward be great? Of course, that was part of his framework for what he heard and, and what he understood uh, as what this great reward would be, and the Lord says to Abram in verse five of Genesis fifteen, "Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them." Then he said to them, so, "Said to him, so shall your offspring be." And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. What do we call that? That last statement. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Justification, right? Justification by faith. He believed. God justifies him. Credits to him as righteous. I know it's early. Next week, it's going to be worse because we have daylight savings time. And the spring, you know, is always worse because you lose the hour. So I'm not looking forward to that at all. So next week. I don't know. Anyway, we'll just drink extra coffee. But uh, justification by faith alone. So right from the beginning, as we open our Bibles and, and, and from, from the beginning of history, we have the proclamation of the gospel, and now we have the means described in Genesis 15. So for, for those who, who maybe you grew up being taught this or believing this or hearing other Christians say this, the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the New Testament is God of grace. The Old Testament, they were saved by works you know, under the law. The New Testament were saved by faith alone. Well, that's simply not true. Uh, from the very beginning, we see Abraham is saved uh, by faith. Westminster Confession in chapter 11, verse 6, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was in all these respects one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. And it goes on to cite a number of passages to defend that position, one of them being Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The point that's being made there is that there is continuity in God's plan. So there's not these different plans or different epochs in in, in different times, but one singular plan, one continuous plan of redemption from the opening pages of Scripture throughout history. We are now sons and daughters of Abraham and therefore children of God. We are um, recipients of this promise that was given to Abraham through faith in Christ. And so that's the beginning and and how the the origin begins. Joel Beeky writes, "...Israel's confidence in their covenant God... And its redemptive work in covenantal history is of an assuring nature. Saving faith in the Abrahamic covenant was synonymous with knowing, trusting in, and relying on Israel's faithful covenant-keeping God, assured that he could and would fulfill his promises to his people. And so as we look at in the Psalms, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. We see... Throughout Old Testament history, um, the, the, the idea that God is the initiator, he is the accomplisher, and his people are saved by faith throughout all periods of history. When we go through the prophets in the Old Testament, we've been looking at Jeremiah on Sunday mornings. Uh, redemption or restoration is, is, is typically forward-looking. Now, there's often some immediate contextual things, but most of it is, it, it is far off. And actually, most of what the prophets have to say is judgment. So even the restoration kind of stuff it seems to be uh, minor. But yet, as we've seen through Jeremiah, it is, you know, peppered out through through the through the entire. Uh, message or throughout the messages but we see it most clearly and I'm using Jeremiah as an example because that's where we've been we could see this in other prophets as well but I use Jeremiah we see it really especially in chapter 31 behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant not like the new covenant or not like the covenant that I made with their fathers I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so the hope then that's put forth in the prophets is the destiny of God's people. You will be my people, and I will be your God. That's the worldview that the people of God were to have. In the Psalms, we see both wrestlings with doubt, and we see bold proclamations of assurance. We see both of those... Uh, wedded together. And one of the themes that resonates in the book of Psalms is that of mercy. Um, it's the same, the same things that we looked at last week in Jude. Those four things, the, the remembering God's love, being built up in the faith, praying in the Spirit, and then waiting in thankfulness with patience uh, to see, uh, remembering with thankfulness rather, to see all that God has done for us. All those four things are seen throughout the Psalms. And so that same paradigm is demonstrated, demonstrated there. We also see what we looked at last week in the Psalms, that God is merciful uh, to those who doubt. In the New Testament, Hebrews 11 recounts all of the Old Testament saints who were commended for their faith. And we see in that list all of the all-stars of the faith, Abraham and Sarah, but then we see some unexpected ones in the list. You know, We see Rahab there as well. And then in the words that follow... that accounting of those who were justified, justified by faith, we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what the writer of Hebrews is getting at here is what is declared really throughout redemptive history up to that point, but now through the Gospels, through Acts, through the Epistles, uh, that our assurance is centered on the person of Christ. So Old Testament saints saved by justification by faith, same mode of salvation, they're looking forward to the promised Messiah that is to come. We now have a clear perspective of that object of faith that God has sent his Son in the person of Jesus and and, and he is the one in whom we trust. He he becomes the center of that. So, redemptive history then is seen as kind of the scarlet thread that runs Genesis to Revelation or throughout all of history, declaring that our confidence is found in the fulfillment of the promises of Christ. Look back throughout the Old Testament, even the New Testament promises, uh, and we see not only the promises that have been fulfilled, that God has been faithful, but then that points us forward to look uh, to To the promises that have yet to be fulfilled, the promises that we await on that God will fulfill them as well, um, part of what we 're seeing in, in when we get to the new testament though that's that 's unique is the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, the role of the Holy Spirit sent at Pentecost is is now that indwells all of us, and that plays a significant part in our assurance we 're going to talk about more of that next week, but in the context of understanding redemptive history, particularly in Scripture. Uh, R.C. Sproul writes, the Spirit gives His testimony with the Word and through the Word, never without the Word or against the Word. And so this thread of redemptive history as revealed in Scripture is key to our assurance. That is, how the Lord is going to assure us, uh, even through experiences and so forth, is never going to go against His Word. It's always going to be uh, according to what he has said. It's never going to be contrary to it. The Reformers had a lot to say about assurance, including uh, it's, uh, uh, this, this whole idea of redemptive history or looking at Scripture. Martin Luther preached to his congregation that Christians are to have a firm and unshakable knowledge of God's will toward us, which gives assurance to our consciences and fortifies them against all uncertainty and mistrust. John Calvin said, There is no better assurance of salvation to be found anywhere than can be gained from the decree of God. It is the word of God alone which can first and effectually cheer the heart of the sinner. There is no sure or solid peace to be enjoyed in the world except in the way of reposing upon the promises of God. So that's really, really quick. I realize I just went fast, but I didn't want to get too stuck up in this because we've, you know, we've, Dealt with the sum already in some sense. But it, it, what I'm trying to express here is that, you know, for us to, to gain assurance, uh, it isn't, a, I've said this before, it's not a commodity. It's not something that we can go, if it were, I mean, we'd have it on the book table, right? You know, we, 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 we'd be passing it out. We would uh, we'd be, we'd be giving it to. Assurance is something that is, because it's through faith and because it is faith itself, it is something that is both uh, it's a gift we see that in scripture uh, we see, we see assurance as something that is a uh, it's, it's a process there's growth in it we're not it's not static um, but one of the things that that in, in, that's true in all of those respects is that it conforms to god 's word it's not just that it conforms to god 's word in the sense of like uh, legal writings or, or, or laws that keep us intact but it's it also comes from God's Word because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And so there may be times where when we're doubting, uh, God's Word doesn't have the sweetness to it that we want. And so uh, we we find our hearts resistant to going to it. Or maybe God's Word has been used as a weapon. Uh, You know, that's possible. God's good Word... Can be used as a weapon uh, by believers with good or bad intentions uh, to to judge shame, ridicule, or even control uh, other believers and so when those things happen you you have to go back to whose word it is that this isn 't if you treat this like it 's a book or like it 's legal discourse that 's laws on paper. Uh, It becomes very detached from the person whose word it is. And it can become uh, not just bland, but it can become distasteful. But when you go back to whose word it is, that this is the God who set his affections upon us, the God who loved us first, the God who that while we were sinners sent Christ to die for us, this is his word to us. It's a good word. It's a word that's intended for our benefit. Then we can go to it even when we struggle to go to it and find assurance in it. Uh, so I hope that's helpful in terms of one of the paradigms that I want to address this morning of how we grow in assurance. Any questions on Scripture, redemptive history, the role it plays in our assurance? Our comments? or are... Some of you guys have that look like you just... Flew through that, and my brain's still trying to get coffee in it. Um, all right, so the next thing I want to <laughs> uh, the next thing I want to talk about um, is uh, so if we look at scripture as 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 the foundation, the bedrock. Um, one of the other kind of angles that we can come at this at are theological frameworks that we can look at to strengthen our assurance that are. Um, uh, that flow out or, distill, or are distilled from Scripture. So one example of a theological framework would be the five solas uh, that came out of the Reformation. The five solas are, uh, begin with sola scriptura, which is what we've just been talking about, so we don't really need to talk about it, Scripture alone. Um, that is the source of the truth that it, God has revealed in His Word is the foundation for not just what we know, uh, but it's our, it's our confidence in our salvation. So when we have experiences, it doesn't mean that our experiences can't speak to our assurance, but only so far as they conform to God's word. And so this is why, where, you know, subjective experiences can be tricky um, uh, because they're subjective, right? We all have different experiences. They mean different things to us. Um, if we rely on our experiences alone, however, uh, they, they can be fickle. Uh, and so if we're drawing our assurance from our experience, be it a kind of a revivalistic type of thing that we had where we felt strong, we felt warm. But this the summer Christian summer camp. For anybody that went to Christian summer camp, it's that kind of experience, right? You go, you're on fire, you want to you know, you change the world, and then a week later you come back and it's just the fire just is kind of gone. Uh, it doesn't mean that that's not helpful and purposeful in terms of the experience itself, but our assurance can't be based on that experience. Uh, the same is true even just for w- weekly worship. If we come and we're c- it, part of what, what we experience is this recharging, this refocusing, this reorienting that comes through corporate worship. But it isn't the experience alone and where we find our assurance, but the experience as it conforms to God's revealed will in Scripture. And so where we uh, come to, to, to worship, it's in conformity with God's Word. Uh, yeah, we're strengthened by that. We thank God for it. Um, when we walk in obedience and conformity to God's Word, we, we thank God for the, 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 the fact that that reveals the Spirit's work in our lives. Right? We recognize that our obedience is not in our own power and strength. And so we come back to Scripture again and again. Uh, Spurgeon has this quote that I've come across a few times in, in, in my studies for this, and he says, when people wanted to know if they were of the elect, he would answer, if you were worried about it, then you are. And that's been requoted a number of times, but that's as, as far... I'm sure he's not, probably not the first who said it, but maybe the most well-known. But I think that's really helpful as we come to Scripture that if our concern is that we know that we're assured, and we, we come there. Even the concern itself is evidence of the Spirit's work. So we come to the Bible, that's, that's central, that's key, that's foundational, sola scriptura. Uh, sola fide, faith alone. Again, we looked at Abraham this morning. He's justified by faith, credited uh, with the righteousness of God when he believed and he is saved. And so in our, in our sense, if our works are any part of our salvation then we're going to be forever caught in a cycle of doubt. If our works were uh, to to be um, meritorious, what will we always be wondering? I saw you. Isn't enough? Isn't enough? It's almost, you know, I did this, this, and this, but was it enough? Um, Our assurance is not found in our faith. Our assurance is found in the object of our faith. Yeah, except we also have a hymn and a hymnal called Blessed Assurance Jesus is Mine. That's right. That's right. So the point there is that the assurance is not in how we feel, it's not in the subjective experience, it's not even the fact that we have faith itself. It's in the object of our faith. Uh, And um, um, we come back to the person and the work of Christ again and again. Faith alone. Uh, Grace alone is the third, sola gracia. Uh, And it's similar to to Faith Alone, that if our our merit were something that could be earned, it would not be grace at all. And so it's the idea that we come with empty hands. We don't come a leg up on someone else because we've done this or we were born into this family or we knew this. We all come with empty hands. We receive what is the free gift by grace uh, through faith. And then as we walk with Christ that grace becomes magnified in our lives. One of the benefits of assurance is not only does, as it grows is it a, is it a comfort to us, but then it becomes a magnification of, of the grace of God to others as well. So it becomes a testimony and a comfort to others. It's one of the beauties of it. Uh, the fourth, solus Christus, Christ alone. Uh, assurance in Christ alone really is the key. That's where all of our hope is found is in the cross of Christ. This is where it all centers. Our temptation uh, is to think of our sin. Uh, Our temptation is to think of our unworthiness, um, our doubts, our insincerity. But as we look to the cross, Christ is the proof that God loves us, that while we were sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. And so we talk about all of these things, and I mentioned we'd come at it from different angles, but we're always going to come back to this key thing, that it is Christ. That's where our assurance is found. We look at who he is, what he did for us, what he's accomplished, uh, what awaits us in him. This is where our assurance is found. And the fifth, of gloria, to the glory of God alone. The proof uh, that, that we are growing in assurance then gives glory to God um, and, and so that others might see it. But ultimately, it gives glory to God so that, that he gets to put it on display because he's God. Um, In the coming ages, he might be able to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so even just looking at something like a a theological framework, uh, looking at what it teaches, what it instructs our, our, uh, our hearts and our minds about, can be a strengthening source of assurance what God has done for us in Jesus. Second example, the doctrines of grace, total depravity. Can this strengthen us in our assurance? Actually, yes. <laughs> um, most of us don't have any problem with total depravity. We see it. Uh, we see evidences of it. I always tell people if they doubt it, go volunteer in the nursery. Um, you know, we just we, we see it from from infancy that that uh, that we um, we're all sinners, and recognizing our helplessness can actually strengthen our assurance because in our helplessness, Christ came to save us. If there was a way for anyone to be saved apart from Christ, if we weren't helpless, if we weren't totally depraved, that would totally squash my assurance. Because I would look to them like, they they did it. I couldn't do it. I wonder if I'll be accepted, you know. Uh, So even our helplessness points to a way that we can be assured, total depravity. Unconditional election. Uh, The doctrine of election can be difficult for people to accept or comprehend, but you can't deny it, uh, at least when it comes to Scripture? Yes, sir. Yeah, it really is key to understand that, that because the, the the problem with thinking that total depravity is is it means that I'm as bad as I can be, is that we can always find someone we think is worse. And then it kind of debunks that whole notion. And so the the, the doctrine of the total depravity, as Eric points out, is not saying that we're as bad as we can be. The, the the doctrine of total depravity says there's there's no righteousness left in us. There's no part of our being uh who we are that has been unaffected from sin. In other words, there, there isn't just some uh, this little part that if we could just access it that that would be able to save from it because it is it's okay. We're totally affected. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wherever, wherever it is in here. Yeah. 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 Yes. The thing with that I've always thought of is it sounds really nice to think that there's only 5%, you know, but, but we all know <laughs> our own hearts. <laughs> if that were true, that would not even be that helpful, would it? Uh, unconditional election. So the beauty of our election is the fact that, uh, or, or because of the beauty of our election, can actually be a source of our strength, as we see uh, in, in Scripture, that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Those three verses in Ephesians 1, we could take a whole lesson, if not more, and talk about all of this. mean, so if you've ever been in a, in a church or a Bible study that has, you know, taught through just word by word, you realize there's so much here um, that, that we could take and unpack. Uh, but but it's, it's the whole, uh, to, to me, there's a beauty in this, that, that what God has done for us in Christ Jesus for his glory, uh, you know, it, it, it is, is, is absolutely beautiful that he didn't just, you know, spin up the clock and set it down and say, I hope they figure it out. But he intervenes, and he draws us to himself, and he saves us. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And that can be of great comfort to us as believers. Now, I realize that that doesn't deal with the fact of what if I'm not chosen, and that's, that's another question we'll look at. Uh, but but, but it's, it's the whole idea of, I, I, go, go back to Spurgeon, if you're worried about it, then you are. Um, that's not Bible, by the way, but I do think that, that, that what Spurgeon is getting at is is something that we all recognize is, is really essential, that if I were not uh, a child of God, I wouldn't be concerned about it, I wouldn't be losing sleep over it, and so forth. And so there's evidence of God's grace, even in that concern over my salvation. Limited atonement, Another doctrine that's difficult for some to grasp, and yet we read Jesus say, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And in that is great assurance that he laid down his life for his sheep so that, that he would lose none is very assuring. So what he's saying here in John 6 is that the Father had already determined, we know this from Ephesians 1 and other passages as well, that for the foundations of the world, the Father has already elected. But here Jesus says that while he's on earth in ministry saying, the ones that the Father, uh, the will of him who sent me, is that I should lose nothing. And again, we go back to that sprawl quote, how much is left from nothing? Yeah. How much will Jesus lose? Nothing. So will he lose you? Will he let you go? No. Irresistible grace. I think, again, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So even in irresistible grace, we see an assurance that his sheep are known by him, that they hear his voice, You see in that irresistible grace, the following of him, they follow him. And just as surely as they follow him, he says, no one will separate them from me or snatch them from me. So who's going to snatch you from the hands of Jesus? No one. What's left? Nothing. Okay. So we come back to that again and again. Perseverance of the saints, the fact that no one can snatch us out of his hand also points to Perseverance. Just as we work out our faith in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us, so we can be confident with Paul who wrote, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So if no one can snatch me out of my hand, if God never lies, he keeps all of his promises, then I can be confident that he will bring to completion the work that he started. What about if I do this? What about if I think this? What about if this happens to me? No. In all of these things, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So, you know, whatever it is, the obstacle that we're up against in that moment of doubt, we look back to the fact that God keeps all of his promises. And so we know that he will carry us to the end. So that's a brief overview of two uh, theological frameworks uh, my point of, of giving these to you is not to say that these are a magic pill, that if you just kind of look at these uh, you know, five solas or, or, or five doctrines of grace that you will have full assurance, but rather that we, these are ways that we can be thoughtful. This is why we, are, we stick our noses in Scripture. This is why we study. This is why we read. This is why we grow, that we're thoughtful before the doubts arise. Today may be a, doubt, a day when, when doubts are few or if any, and we feel strong, and we're together with God's people, and so we're not really doubting. But tomorrow is another story, and there may be things that happen, or we just may wake up in kind of a fog of, of, of despair or whatever the reason is. But if we've been mindful of the truths of God, if we've been strengthened in them, then they are more readily available to us, so to speak, uh, when we walk and face doubt. So whether we suffer or sin, whether we hear something, something from uh, someone else that seems to be in conflict with our faith, we are th- you know, we've been prepared. We've thought through these things. So it might be a verse or a passage one day. It might be a theological framework another. It might be a hymn, like Ray mentioned, uh, that's, that's dense with truth, uh, that, if, uh, that assures us and affirms what God has done to us. Various things that come to mind to remind us that nothing will separate us from his love. I want to close. We have just a couple minutes left. I want to close uh, by going back to the Psalms. And one of the things that has uh, just come to my mind a number of times, it, it doesn't uh, it kind of fits. It, it all fits, right? We're talking about doubt and assurance, But um, I'm sticking it here because I, I don't want to forget to say this. Many of the Psalms, when we go speak, uh, when we go read the Psalms, we, we, we read that they, they speak in the context of, of military war fighting Uh, oppressors, uh, attackers, you know, swords, bows and arrows, spears, all of those things. And we we know that while David and the other psalmists wrote, and most of those things were literal threats, they also can serve as metaphors and so forth against other threats. Um, But it's still hard to relate to at times. You know, you're reading through the psalms, and you think you've connected with the psalmist, and then there's this part about a person coming after me and they want to throw me in the pit and all of this, and you're thinking, nobody's really doing that to me. I mean, I hope not, but maybe it's true sometimes, but it's just hard to relate to. Um, But one of the things that's, uh, that's an overwhelming theme in the Psalms is fear. And if we think about doubt and assurance, we recognize that often our doubts are accompanied by fear. We're afraid that God doesn't love us. We're afraid that we aren't saved. We're afraid that our sins have somehow separated us from the love of God, that we've just done that one thing too many times, or we've just done that one thing that was too bad. We're afraid that we're not strong enough, that we don't have enough faith, or that we're not worthy. And so, as we face such fears, consider reading through the lens, uh, this lens in Psalm, by plugging in in the place of these military figures are doubts. Because doubts can often be our attackers. They can be what comes after us. Um, And so as we read, for example, Psalm 56, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. Maybe it's not a person who's trampling on you, but maybe there is a doubt that tramples you. All day long an, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And so even how we approach the psalm, this is a prayer. And this is a, this is a prayer from the psalms that we can, we can pray. Uh, plugging in, in instead of if it's not people that are coming after you, and maybe that is true sometimes, but it's often, it's often stuff inside of our hearts that we are asking God to protect us from, to deliver us from, to, to, uh, to save us from. And so we can take a, a prayer like this, Psalm 56, and pray it back. So when we are afraid and doubt, may we return to our God in whose word we praise that we put our confidence In Him, remembering that it's whose word it is, that He is the object of our faith. It's not the word itself. It's not our faith itself. It's not our theology itself, but it is the person and work of Jesus Himself. Any questions, comments, thoughts? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Um, you know, we see over and over again that the gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, and and Paul unpacks that a little bit in that there is a, um, uh, in a sense, a stewardship, a responsibility, almost like what we might see an older brother kind of thing that that the expectation. Uh, of, of what was upon the Jews, because they had been given the prophets, they had been given uh, the, the law they had you know they, they had these things that they, they should have seen they should have known um, so is is there a, a, a sense that that, that he 's tougher from a human perspective, I could see that that yeah I, that's that 's understandable, but from you know from a bigger picture is there does that mean that there's something greater that they must overcome um, i don't know if i would go that far uh, in other words like the, is there anything that they have to do i mean at the end of the day a Jew and a Gentile saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone like certain verses like after received knowledge of the Yeah. Yeah. No and and when you know when you um uh, is that uh, Hebrews six? Is that where that is? Ten. Okay. Um, I th- I think it's it may be back at six or maybe it's in ten. Um, but but when when uh, the writer of Hebrews, whoever the author is, uh, is dealing with that in terms of the um, uh, the the willfully sinning, uh, we know that if if no one can snatch us from the hand of Christ, than uh, then even willful sinning. Or um, I'm trying to remember the passage, I think it's in Hebrews, where he says that they continually crucify Christ or they crucify him over. Uh, if, if it's true that no one can snatch us from his hand, then it's true that, that we can't out-sin it. And so that category then has to be reserved for those who were never believers at all. And that's one of the things that we sometimes we forget when we come to Scripture is that these epistles and these letters were being written to, uh, well, and, and are written to, I mean, you could say the church universal in our day or the church visible. Um, the church visible or the church, uni, you know, not universal, but the church visible. Is everybody who gathers, who identifies as a Christian. But we know everyone who calls themselves a Christian isn't a Christian. And so there are those messages of warning there. Not that we can lose our salvation. I, I, wouldn't, I, I couldn't go that far uh, to say that, that that's what uh, Hebrews or, or James gets to. But there's a warning in that. I mean, obviously, even as a believer, and I know that I can't lose my salvation, there's still a warning for me not to trample on the crucifixion of Christ, not to go on willfully sinning. There's a, there's a bit of a um, a, a, reef, a flinch in that. Like, oh, you know, I, I don't want that to be me. And, and I think that is purposeful. I think that's intentional uh, and good. I don't know if that helps at all. Okay. All right. Well, let me close in prayer because the musicians will be here in a minute. And I want to make sure they have time to practice. Thanks for being here, guys. Lord, thank you for your word that as we look throughout redemptive history, we see not just examples of, uh, of those who trusted you, um, those are good and helpful, but we see the fact that you have, you're you consistent, that you, um, you, you, you've saved your people the same way throughout history. And in that consistency, we gain great assurance. You've, you, you've done it. You've done it. You will do it. So strengthen our hearts as we see again and again in Scripture that you have done it so that we will know for sure that you will do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.